we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. When I identify myself with a group, idea, belief or conclusion, that identification is the very essence of being occupied with myself. Hello and welcome to episode 129 of Urgency of Change. Season 3 of the Krishnamurti podcast continues with the format of carefully chosen extracts from the philosopher's talks. Each weekly episode focuses on a theme explored by Krishnamurti and the aim is to represent his different approaches to these universal topics. This week's theme is identification. Upcoming themes are understanding, struggle and light. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Please visit our website at kfoundation.com Org, where you can find a growing collection of in-depth articles on Krishnamurti's teachings, along with key topics and a wide selection of quotes. Our online store stocks all available Krishnamurti books and ships worldwide. You can also find our daily quotes and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps its visibility. This week's episode on identification has four sections. The first extract is from Krishnamurti's first talk in Sanan, 1978, titled The Movement of Identification. So we are inquiring... Seriously, why human beings, with this marvellous world around them, the beauty, the extraordinary nature, the quality of water, the birds, the sea and the land and the sky and the heavens above them, why they have reduced everything to the to this narrow little atom, small thing, and writing enormous books about it. And how to get rid of it, what to do, practice, meditate, sacrifice, deny, starve, fast, everything to get rid of the small me. (coughs) 
the futility of sacrifice, the futility of denial of the me, and identifying itself with something else, with the family, with the nation, with a belief, with a god, with um, international umpteen forms of identification, will not solve the problem. What will solve the, dissolve this thing that is so corrupting, that is always seeking power, position, authority, grabbing for itself everything, utilizing knowledge as a means of further success, further power, further indulgence, and so on. Now can we factually observe not only the idea of me, the idea of the center, but also observe the movement of the senses. The various senses, which is actually sensations. These sensations touched all the rest of it. These sensations exist, are actual. There must be. You cannot deny sensations. But when thought identifies itself with those sensations, then the structure of the center is beginning to be formed. Kapita. Right? Please, this is not intellectual observation. Just ordinary daily fact, if you observe. The senses. I like, one likes a particular form of food. Drink, smoke, drugs, and thought then identifies itself with that particular food and says the taste of it, the smell of it, the delight of it, and with that identification, in that identification, the center is formed. That's obvious. Now, can you observe? Please listen to this. It's very interesting if you, are, if you go into this. Can you observe 
the movement of the sensations, whether it be sexual, whether it be taste, hearing or seeing, can you observe those, the movement of those ordinary natural sensations without identifying? You Do you understand this? Am I saying something strange or neurotic or bizarre? It's very important to understand this because we go into this problem of identification. Where there is no identification, there is no centre. Right? It is this constant identification with my senses, with my body, with my thoughts, with thought, you follow? The whole movement of identification. Identification being attachment, inseparable attachment, and with all its associations. And so there is the, this identification is a movement of energy. And that energy becomes more and more and more limited, which is the centre. Right? So we are asking, can you, can, is there an observation of the senses without any form of Identify, thought identifying itself with a particular sensation. You sensations are natural. If you have no sensations, you are utterly paralyzed. Perhaps most of us are. only in a one particular direction, sexual or other direction. But we are talking of the movement of all senses, not one particular sense. If you see the logic of it, the reason of it, that the moment thought says, I didn't, Thought identifies itself with a particular sensation or with all the sensations. That identification is the movement of the of building up the narrow building this vast energy into a narrow channel. Right? Have I explained? Have I made it clear? Not I. There is no speaker. Only in conversation between ourselves, 
as two human beings, we are discovering this. You are discovering, not the speaker. There is no speaker. So you are discovering that any form of identification, not only with the senses, with the family, with the nation, with ideas, with conclusions, and so on, is the beginning of narrowing down this vast energy <coughs> and limiting itself, therefore resisting the vast movement of life, right? May I take a breath? So we're asking, as you're sitting there, can you observe your senses without any identification? Identification with the body Look, it's very, very serious what we're going into. (coughs) If you don't want to listen, don't listen. Think about something else. But if you listen, listen with your heart, with your mind, with your whole being. As we we are trying to go into this question, of releasing the tremendous energy which is now canalized into a very, very small, narrow prison from which we act. And there is not only the identification with the senses, therefore with the body, then identification with the name, right? Of course. Even if you give yourself a new name or a new number, that's that's still identification. Which the monks do, and so on. Wildest thought constantly identifying itself with something. You understand my question? What you are doing? My wife, my son, my family, my girl, my boy, my house, my quality. I have experienced so much and must hold on to that experience. I identify myself with Christ, with Krishna, you know, the whole gamut of objects of identification. 
Why? Does thought always identify with something or other? Don't you, if I may ask, not as a speaker, you're asking yourself, don't you ask yourself why? Why do I identify myself with the form, with the name, with all the experiences which have gathered? Or the future identification, why? Why does thought do this all the time? My house, my wife, my belief, my God, my country. I am British, you are French, I am German, you are Russian. You follow? What? Is it because thought being in constant flux? Please find out, I'm just inquiring, find out. Being constant flux movement <coughs> needs security about something. Inquire. Don't, please, you are inquiring, asking yourself this. When you say, it's my house, that gives you certainty, stability, security. When you identify your thought identifies itself with a house, <clears throat> it is necessary. It gives it security, shelter, safety, protection. The physical identification with the house gives it security. But watch it. That movement of identification with a physical necessity is taken over psychologically. Right? There it is necessary, <coughs> but here it may not be necessary at all. But we are constantly doing this from the, and then the necessity, having clothes, though we may not identify myself with my trousers, shirt, or blouse, or whatever you one wears, but the 
attachment, the physical need, and from that need move into a psychological ground. They say, it is necessary there too, and it may not be. The second extract is from the eighth talk in Ojai, 1949, titled Identification is the Basis of Illusion. Any form of identification must lead to illusion. There is a psychiatric illusion and a psychological illusion. The psychiatric illusion we know what to do with. When one thinks one is Napoleon or a great saint, you know what to do. But it, it is the psychological identification and illusion is quite different. The political religious person identifies himself with the country or with God. He is the country, and the mo if he has a talent, then he is a nightmare to the rest of the world. Either specifically or violently. Then there are the various forms of identification. Identification with authority with the country, with an idea. Identification with a belief which makes one do all kinds of things, with an ideology for which you are willing to sacrifice everybody and yourself and, uh, and your country and everything in order to achieve what you want. The identification with an utopia, which, make, which force, makes you force others to a particular pattern. And then there is the identification of the actor. Playing different roles. And as most of us are in that position of acting, posing, deliberately or consciously or unconsciously, our difficulty is not to identify with the country, with the politician, with the propaganda, with the belief, with the idea, with an ideology, with the leader. That's one kind of identification. Then there is the identification of our own, with our own experience. I have had an experience, a thrilling thing. And the more I dwell on it, the more intense, the more romantic, the more sentimental, the more blurred it becomes. 
and to which I give name of God, you know, the innumerable ways of self-deception. Surely, illusion arises when I cling to something. If I have an experience, and because it is over, it's finished, and if I go back to it, I'm in illusion. If I want something repeated and hold to that repetition of an experience, it's bound to lead me to an illusion. So the basis of illusion is identification. Either of the politician, of the religious person to an image or to a god, to a voice, or like the lot of us who have experiences to which we cling. Ardently. It is not to the experience we cling, but to the sensation of that experience which we had at the moment of experiencing. <coughs> and a man who has built around himself various methods of identification and with which he, he is identified, he is living in illusion. A man who believes, because it is a sensation, it is an idea, and clings to that, he is bound to be in illusion, in self-deception. Therefore, any experience about oneself, which, to which you go back and wish or reject it, is bound to lead to illusion. Whereas if you experience and understand it and not hold to it, this desire to possess is the basis of illusion, self-deception. To think oneself to be something <laughs> and this desire to be something must be understood in order to understand the process of illusion, self-deception. And when if I think I shall be the great teacher, great master, great, the Buddha, X, Y, Z, next life, or I am that now, and hold on to that, surely I must be in illusion. Because I live on a sensation which is an idea, and my mind feeds on ideas, whether false or true. And how is one to know oneself at the given moment if it is true? That's part of the question. Why do you want to know if it is true? A fact is a fact, it's not true or false. 
It's only that I want to translate that fact according to my sensation, to my ideation. Then I enter into delusion. When I am angry, it's a fact, there is no question of self-deception. When I am lustful, when I am greedy, when I am irritated, it's a fact. Only when I begin to justify it, find explanations for it. Which is translated according to my prejudice, in my favor, or avoid it. Then I have to find out. And then I have to say, Buchi, what is true? That is, the moment we approach a fact emotionally, sentimentally, with ideation, then we enter into the world of illusion and self-deceit. But to look at a fact requires an extraordinary watchfulness, to be free of all this, to look at something. Therefore it's more important to find out for oneself, not if one is in illusion or self-deception, but to be free from the desire to identify, from the desire to have a sensation which you call experience repeated, from possessing, possessing or reverting to an experience. After all, from moment to moment you can know yourself as you are, factual not through the screen of ideation, which is sensation. To know oneself, there is no necessity to know the truth or not the truth. To look at yourself in the mirror and say that one is ugly or beautiful, factually, not romantically, does not demand truth. But the difficulty with most of us is that we, what we see the image or the feeling or the expression of what we want to do something about it. We want to alter it. Give it a different name. We want to identify with it. If it is pleasurable, the more identification. If it is painful, the avoidance. In this process lies surely self-deception. with which you are somewhat familiar. The politicians do that, and the priests talk of God in the name of religion. When we ourselves are caught up in the sensation of ideas and hold to them, that this is true, this is false, the masters exist or don't exist. which is also absurd and immature and childish. But to find out what is factual is one needs an extraordinary alertness, an awareness in which there is neither condemnation nor justification. So 
so one can say that one deceives oneself and there is illusionment. When there is identification with the country, with a belief, with an idea, with a person, and so on. When there is the desire to re repeat an experience, which is the sensation of the experience, when one goes back to childhood and wants the repetition of that ex experiences of childhood, the delight, the nearness, the sensitivity, or when one wants to be something, It is extremely difficult not to be deceived, either through oneself or deceived by another. And deception ceases only when there is no desire to be something. then the mind is capable of looking at things as they are. Taking significance of what is. Then there is no battle between the false and the true. Then there is no search for truth apart from the false. So the important thing is to understand the process of the mind. And without understanding that, which is factual, not theoretical, not sentimental, romantic, going to dark rooms and thinking it all out, having images, visions, all that has nothing to do with reality. And as most of us are sentimental, romantic, seeking sensations, we are caught by ideas. And ideas are not what is. So the mind that is free of ideas, which are sensations, such a mind is free from illusion. The third extract is from Krishnamurti's second talk in Sanan, 1978, titled Identification is Occupation with Oneself. Then one begins to inquire very, very deeply and slowly, hesitantly, without any conclusion, right? Like a first-class lawyer or a surgeon, doesn't bring all his concepts. He want, first inquires the case. The, ca the case is us. We are the problem. So we must 
be very clear what is our problem, which I begin to question whether we are. We are so diffused, emotional, sentimental. So we are always colouring the problem, looking at it from a very, very narrow, limited point. Isn't this so? So one has to be very advisedly careful that in our examination into why human beings are so destructive, destructively occupied with themselves, in inquiring into that, and whether it is possible to be f- totally free from this occupation, completely. The freedom is the complete dissolution of the Self. Then there is freedom. We are going to go into all that. Does one see the actual danger of this self-centred occupation? That occupation may be may identify itself with a nation, with a group, with a particular ideal or belief. It is the same process. I hope this is clear. When I identify myself with a group, with an idea, with a belief, with a conclusion, that identification <coughs> is the very essence of occupation, of being occupied with oneself. Right? When one is occupied with, say, uh, internationalism, You have moved from occupying yourself, with yourself, to something with which you identify yourself. Therefore, that identification is still the occupation of oneself. Is this clear? When I when I identify myself with Christ or Jesus or Krishna or whatever it is, I I am still in the process of identifying myself with that, but it's still occupation with myself. I want this clear. 
Bene, can we go on if that's clear? So, the central issue is whether one can exist <coughs> healthily, sanely, harmoniously, without identifying with anything. Not only outwardly, but inwardly. Identifying myself with my experience, identifying oneself with the family, with beliefs, with institutions, and so on. That means, can one live in this world with no identification? Which means, can one live harmoniously both with the outer and the inner, without any, any sense of occupation and identification? Is this? Let's be clear of the problem first, before we operate on it. When one is occupied with oneself, with one's body, with one's beauty, with one's eye, you know, this constant occupation with oneself, you deny actually all relationships. Though you may, you may sleep with another, though you may hold hands with another, say oh, how darling you are, all the rest of it, but the identification process separates human beings. And from that, violence, wars, division of races, everything takes place. Right? Now, next question is whether it's possible to live in this world daily without any sense of identification. Not only with the senses, the body, but with the name, with all the past, the heredity, you understand, the Englishman, the German, the, all the history of all the past, to be completely free from all that, and yet live in harmony with activity in daily life. Is this problem clear now? First of all, there is no speaker, as we pointed out the other day. You are speaking to yourself. You are looking at yourself. 
I may, the speaker may be the mirror, but the mirror has no value. You use the telephone to speak, but the telephone itself has very little importance. What you say in the telephone is important. So, in the similarly, there is no speaker here. You are talking to yourself, you are observing yourself, you are observing your occupation with yourself, and the result of that occupation in your daily activity, which is creating such chaos in the world. When, the, when people identify themselves with Russia, with a certain ideology, you become terribly brutal. You are willing to torture people, and so on. We won't go into all that. Everybody knows about it. Every magazine, every newspaper goes into all this. So. The next question is, can the mind totally disassociate not only with knowledge which it has acquired and stored up, to which it becomes attached, but also can the mind remain not in isolation, because when one thinks, if one is not occupied oneself, you have no relationship to others. You are so totally isolated. Those are all concepts, conclusions, theories. So what we are saying is, can the mind, including the brain, the senses, when we use the word mind, I mean including all that, the brain, the movement of thought, the experiences accumulated as knowledge, memory, the whole momentum of thinking, and the senses, all that is the mind, which is essentially consciousness. Right? Can that mind, which has been so conditioned through millennia, because our mind, our minds, brains are very, very, very old. It's not something new that we have acquired when you're born. 
It is a tremendously old mind, heavily conditioned to, to occupy itself with itself. Can that mind free itself completely <coughs> from the past, which includes knowledge, tradition, heredity, all that, and actively, sanely live in daily life harmoniously? Is this possible? Right? You understand the problem? The identification between the Jew and the Arab, what in the Middle East, what, they are, what is happening? When the Russians are occupied with an ideology and forcing man to man to shape himself according to that ideology, the authoritarian totalitarianism, which is destroying, and so on, so on, so on. Does one see this centralized occupation is enormous danger that's going to destroy man? <coughs> then the problem is how to disentangle, how to unravel all this and put it all away. Right? Now, what is your answer? I'm not answering you. You're answering. <coughs> you are looking in the mirror. There is no speaker. You are looking and asking these questions. If you ask this question, looking in the mirror, you might say, well, it's not possible. That's the instinctual response. No, it's not possible. If you say it's not possible, then you have blocked yourself. Right? That's natural, isn't it? But if you say it is possible, that also means you have blocked yourself, both neg negative and the positive, is a, a way of avoiding the issue. Right? So you are looking at the mirror, there is no speaker, and you are neither accepting nor denying, saying it is or it is not possible, but looking. So here comes the problem, whether you are actually looking or you are looking at an idea which you have projected. You understand my question? whether you are actually looking in the mirror or you are looking with the conclusion or idea 
or a hope and through that hope, through that idea, through that conclusion, looking at yourself. You understand? When you do that, you can't see. If I am prejudiced about you because you wear right shirt or blue shirt or crinkly hair or this or that, I can't, I mean, it's silly. I could, if I want to have any contact with you, it's not possible. But to look at oneself in the mirror and find the answer for yourself in the mirror, because nobody is going to answer it, then you might say, why are we here? If you don't answer this question as the speaker, what the dickens am I sitting here for? Which would be natural response. But as we said, we are human beings. There is this immense problem confronting us, a crisis, danger, destruction, and sane, healthy, serious people must answer the, find an answer out of all this. So in the, looking at the mirror, where there is no speaker, you say, why is this possible at all to move out of this habitual, constant, apparently irrevocable movement of this occupation? Right? So are you looking at the mirror or looking at the idea that you have a mirror in front of you? You see the difference? Do you? The idea, which is not the fact, the idea is an abstraction of the fact, a movement away from the fact. So. If it is terribly important that you find the answer urgently, seriously, then ideas have no place. You are actually looking. Then what takes place? The final extract in this episode is from the sixth talk in Sanan, 1977, titled To find out the truth of death, all identification must end. I want to find out the truth of this extraordinary state. Together, 
Please, this is a very serious game we are playing. It's beyond chess, beyond football, beyond everything. It's a game of... We are playing a game with delight, enjoying the game. And therefore, a mind that is eager to find out. Not saying, I must find out because I, will, I like to live next life. I'm frightened of death. Therefore, please tell me if there's something more. That's not playing the game. So we are together trying to find out the truth of this thing. Because death must be the most extraordinary experience. much greater than so-called love, much greater than any desire, any idea, any conclusion, because it may be the end of everything, the end of every form of relationship, every form of recollection, remembrance, accumulation, It might be total annihilation, right? Complete ending of everything, and one must find out what is the truth of this matter. To find out the truth, come upon it, every form of identification must end, right? Every form of fear and the desire for comfort. It is that desire for comfort may create illusion. And therefore, when uh, caught in that illusion, say, yes, there is a marvellous state after death. So, we are clearing, we are, we are learning how to observe the way of observation, which is holistic, which means there is no fear, there is no desire for comfort, there is no illusion, and therefore the mind is completely free to look. Are we doing this? Which means you have no attachment. Which is enormously difficult. Because I am attached to my wife, house, ideas, conclusions, and therefore I am frightened to let go. I am frightened to be completely alone. Are 
we explain that word alone means all one. So, no attachment of any kind to anything, to ideas, to persons, to a future hope. Please, this is, if you are playing the game, this is very, very serious. To your son, to your daughter, to your wife, to your husband, no attachment. Which doesn't mean that you become callous. Attachment means uh, when there is attachment, there is delusion, illusion. And when there is illusion, there is no clarity. And when there is no clarity, there is no freedom, and therefore no order. So, mind must have no identification with the name, with the form, or with any person. Idea, conclusion. Is that possible? And as we said, that does not deny love. On the contrary, when you are attached to a person, there is no love, there is dependence, there is a fear of loneliness. To be left alone in a world where the, everything is so terribly insecure, both psychologically as well, as well as outwardly. Therefore, desire to be attached to something. As you are listening, hmm? if you want to find out what is the truth of death, what is the meaning, the real depth of that extraordinary thing that must happen in life. There must be, there must be freedom, and there is no freedom when there is attachment, when there is fear, when there is a desire for comfort. Can you put all that aside? Can you? Otherwise, don't play the game. You can't play the game. If you have, and I hope you have, we were trying to find out together the truth of this extraordinary thing called death. And also the truth of what is before death. You understand? Not the truth after death, but also the truth before death. What is the truth before death? If that is not clear, the other can't be clear. So we must look very closely 
and carefully and freely what is before death, which we call living. Therefore, what is the truth of our living? Which means, what, what are you? Or who are you? You understand? What are you? What you call living? And we are trying to see the truth of that. I don't have to tell you, have I? You know it very well. A heavily conditioned mind, through education, environment, through culture, through religious sanctions and beliefs and dogmas, rituals, my country, your country, the constant battle, wanting to be happy and being unhappy, depressed, and elated, going through anxiety, uncertainty, hate, envy, and the pursuit of pleasure, fear, right? Afraid to be alone, fear of loneliness, old age, disease. This is our this is the truth of our life, daily life, right? And can such a mind which hasn't put order in this life, order in the sense which comes through clarity and compassion, can such a mind which is so utterly fragmented, disorderly, can find out what tr- the truth about something else. You follow what I am? So one must first put order in one's house. The house is burning, and we are some of us are not aware of it at all. It is actually burning. If you read every day the newspaper, hmm, what is happening in every country? Hmm, while so the house, your house and the house of humanity, is burning, and we are not doing anything about it. Because we are all concerned with our own immediate security. <laughs> right? And when you seek security for God's sake, you are bringing about total insecurity. So, uh, So, in in the last six talks, or whatever we have been through, four or five, we have tried to bring about 
clarity. The out of that clarity and compassion comes intelligence. Intelligence is compassion, is clarity, the awakening of that. And that awakening in the midst of this misery can come about when you are when you live with it completely. You understand? When you live with your suffering, with your sorrow, with your agony, with your personal live it completely, not escape from it at all, in any direction. And out of that comes an extraordinary sense of clarity, which we have talked about considerably. And Have, during these days have you together bring about this intelligence in life, before death? If you have, and I hope for, your, for the sake of humanity and the world that you have, One wants to cry, because we human beings are so damn stupid. And who can find out the truth of death? Not partially dying, partially awake, partially dead, as most human beings are, but the total ending, which is the brain, not having enough oxygen, can only last, I don't know, exactly three or five minutes, if you know it, and after that it cannot function, that is death through disease, accident, old age, or through senility. Now, what is the truth of it all? I have understood, well, some of us may have, un- may have seen what is before death, and in seeing it very, very, very clearly, and out of that clarity comes compassion and therefore in the awakening of intelligence. And with that intelligence we're going to look. You understand? Otherwise you can't you see the, lo- the, tru- the logic of it. If, if your house is not in, in complete order and therefore complete clarity and compassion, how can you find anything beyond it? So, what is the truth of death? That is, complete ending. There may be something, or may not be, right? Because that is the a hope. Therefore, it is a, a hope creates distortion and therefore illusions. So I'm. We are cutting that out. Can you stand all this?
So the ending. Uh, one can only find out the truth of it when there is an ending. Right? Right? When there is an ending to everything that you have. Can you do it? Ending to your attachment. Not giving it a day, but ending it completely now. That what death means. Can you? So ending, complete ending, is when there is complete ending, there is something new is born. You understand? I wonder if you do. You know, fear is a burden, a terrible burden. And when you remove that burden completely, there's something new takes place. Right? But we are afraid of ending, ending at the end of one's life. We are saying, end it now. You have understood? End it, end your vanity. Because without the ending, there is no beginning. Right? And we are caught in this continuity, never ending. So when there is total, complete, holistic ending, there is something totally new beginning, of which you cannot possibly imagine. It's a totally different dimension. My saying it has no value. But as we are together playing the game of trying to find out what is the truth of this extraordinary thing called death, to end to one's attachment, to one's fears, to one's vanities, conclusions, neuroticism, hmm? to end it. Can you do it? Will you do it? Are you doing it? Not bit by bit. One day attachment, next day fear, third day vanity, fourth anxiety and so on. To end it whole thing now. That is, to end the content of consciousness, 
which is our consciousness. The content makes consciousness. The con- content is fear, attachment, greed, envy, my country, your country, my God, your content. To end all that, not through will. Through will you can never do anything, in the psychological sense. Then if you do it by will, there is conflict. Right? And through conflict there is no understanding of the depth and the truth of anything. If you and your wife and your husband are in conflict, you don't understand a relationship. It's only when there is no conflict, then you can look at each other, then you can feel each other, trust each other, love it, you follow? Then this totally different state exists in relationship. So, to find out the truth of what death is, there must be ending of this content of one's consciousness. Therefore you will never ask, Who am I? or What am I? You are your consciousness, with its content. And when there is an ending to that consciousness with its content, there is something entirely different, which is not imagined. You know, human beings have sought immortality in their action. One writes a book, and in that book there is immortality of the writer. A great painter does a sketch or a painting, and that painting becomes the immortal of that human being. All that must end, which no artist is willing to do, So as human beings, and each human being is a representative of the whole of humanity, I wish you could feel that, understand the depth of such a statement. You are the world, and the world is you, and when you when there is change in that consciousness you bring about a change in the human consciousness. So death is the ending of this consciousness as we know it. <coughs>